Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is John Austin Saviano, the founder of High Country Advisors, where he serves as a strategic advisor to both investment firms and the institutional pools of capital that back them. Before starting High Country in 2017, John Austin served as an allocator for nearly two decades at the Moore Foundation, Cambridge Associates, and as the first chief investment officer of the University of California, Berkeley's endowment. Our conversation covers John Austin's career path from direct investing to allocation and insights gleaned across his roles. We then turn to his work at High Country, including lessons he shares with emerging managers to help them tell their story and navigate a difficult fundraising environment, 
and those he shares with allocators about governance and investment committees. Before we get going, it's hedge fund week in the sunshine state of Florida. Whether you're joining hundreds of managers and allocators at Morgan Stanley's Breakers Conference or AMA, or thousands at iConnections Global Alts, you're in for a week of focused nonstop meetings and gatherings. It can be a long, exhausting slog, so I have a suggestion to keep your energy going. When you get to that moment when you just can't take it anymore, step outside, breathe in the warm air, let your shoulders drop, put on your headphones, and make it look like you're taking an important phone call. But instead, start listening to this week's show. Now, inevitably, someone will approach you and potentially take you out of your flowing state of blissful educational entertainment. When that happens, rather than point your ears, indicating you're on a call, turn your phone around, show them the Capital Allocator's podcast icon, and offer an enthusiastic thumbs up. Then point to your eyes and theirs with two fingers, sharing the bond that only comes from seeing eye to eye about being in the inner circle of listeners. Have a great week. Come say hi at Global Alts, and thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with John Austin Saviano. John Austin, great to see you. Indeed, great to see you. Why don't we go back to your background in the business and how you got started? I started my career in mid-90s in credit, learned the fundamentals of credit, working as a commercial lender at a mid-tier bank. And then I shift gears to the opposite end of the risk spectrum. And then went to work for a small venture firm at the peak of the dot-com craziness. So that was how I started my career. But over the last 20 plus years, I've spent my career working with and for endowed institutions of one type or another. And my real break into that was starting the Moore Foundation. Gordon Moore was a co-founder of Intel, and he put up 175 million shares of stock to create a new charitable foundation. And I was really lucky to be on the starting team there. So that's how I started working with endowments and really an institutional money management. So in those early direct money management experiences at both sides, you got the credit lens, you got the venture lens. What are the things you learned in that period of time that you took through to being on the endowed side? A few things come to mind. One is I felt so lucky starting my career in credit because it's just so fundamental. And especially how so many of my peers in the late 90s were focused you know, on banking on companies that were a lot less real. I had the experience of working with companies that were building things and had real working capital needs and equipment leasing and fundamental things to business. So I learned a lot about I think, business fundamentals and underwriting from a creditor's lens. And then some of the other things I learned, reps, you learn how to drop into a new situation. You learn how to evaluate different models and try to keep an open mind to seeing those things. And I think those are things that have served me well when it goes down to spending time with a fund manager. You go to the assets, you go to the companies to get down to the fundamentals and you start there and you build your understanding up from there. So those are some of the things that I took away. What was it that drove you to move from the direct investing side to the Moore Foundation? So many of these things in life, often I think there's been happenstance. The dot-com era out here blew up and I worked for a small firm that had preserved its capital and decided that it wanted to reallocate capital away. It wasn't like a traditional fund structure. And they reallocated capital to other things. It was in early 2000s. I was a finance guy that was out of a job. I got incredibly lucky finding this role at one more was launching. And they were looking for someone who had a diversity of skills to come in and help as an early employee. And they took a chance on me and 
I found a, just a trait that I fell in love with. What part of the asset allocation spectrum did you focus on it more? So when I started more, I was a generalist. You think about when we started, we had basically an all Intel stock portfolio. Those first years, we sold these breathtaking blocks of shares over time. And I'll vividly remember like those early days, the stock going from 36 bucks to like an intraday low, 1295 in my first six months on the job. So a lot of what you're doing is you're getting liquidity. We were liquidating a single stock position, and then we were establishing the core building blocks of an institutional portfolio. And so we were in that happy circumstance as an allocator that you're underweight everything and you have billions of dollars liquidity and it's early 2000s and we need hedge funds. We need long only managers. We need private relationships, especially with the provenance of the capital. Gordon Moore having such huge esteem in the Valley, you were just a kid in the candy store. You got access to such incredible, talented firms. They were eager to partner with us. So roll me through that experience and what came later. So at Moore, I started off there as the senior junior guy. Happens in endowed institutions. It was time to step up after a few years and become the junior senior guy and have a piece of the portfolio. And over that time, we had hired really great folks above me. All the seats were filled. And I recognized that if I wanted to keep growing, I would have to leave. And that was one of the hardest decisions to make, to leave just an extraordinary organization, extraordinary job, but to know that that's what it would take to continue to advance. And in retrospect, a couple of those folks, they're still there at Mork. I mean, it's that good of a job. People have been there for over 20 years in some cases. I went to join Cambridge Associates and I worked on their private capital team. That experience was terrific because instead of focusing on one portfolio, you focus on many. Instead of working with just one investment committee, you work with many investment committees. And you're part of a larger research organization, this huge engine that is Cambridge Associates. And that was a really great chance to add to the skill sets that I built starting off as an allocator at Moore. What did that open your eyes to from the single perspective you had at Moore to seeing more committees, more pools of capital, and broader research? Well, some of the things that are fascinating about Cambridge, first of all, just the scale of the firm. There were hundreds of clients of all different types and having to have the agility to step out of a situation where you're talking with a multi-generational family to a small college where you're dealing directly with the wealth creator to you're dealing with an investment committee of volunteers. They're just very different kinds of environments to have to go. The other things you take away from that are just the reach of the investment research at a place like Cambridge. Instead of being a part of a small team, they have a bench that is just unbelievable in terms of how many managers they cover, how many markets they cover, how many strategies they cover. Again, as someone who loves to learn new things, you couldn't help but just revel in the breadth of what you could get there. There's a couple things that you hear a lot, particularly singular pool of capital. One is that none of these pools have exactly the same mission or objective or alignment. But then at the same time, every one of these individual pools is trying to optimize for alpha. Everyone's trying to find the best managers. How did you see that play out at Cambridge when you had so many different pools and different people involved in those pools? It's a really interesting question. Two anchors of my career are in one in a very large, incredibly resourced private foundation. The other working at UC Berkeley, incredibly volatile, exciting public university. And those very different of context. In Cambridge, we have a lot of in between. 
We had a lot of smaller colleges where you have complicated constituencies, differences in resources. For each client at Cambridge, you tried to bring the best of the firm to their circumstance. So much of that was less about a specific alpha-driven strategy. It was much more about, can we run a really good process? Can we get them a good plan that hangs together, they can stay with? And can we fill that plan with really good ideas? And it's the natural thing of a consultant-driven pool that you're not going to be top decile. What you're really trying to avoid is you're helping them avoid being bottom quartile. You're helping them really be good stewards of the capital because you're focused is more on process than shooting the lights out with specific manager picks. What does that conversation look like? Because in theory, every client does want to be top decile. Right? Always there's the old mantra of be like Yale. But even within that, nobody wants to be told, hey, as long as you're not in the bottom, you're fine. When you engage with a client, when you engage with a consulting relationship like at Cambridge, you need to have the right match of expectations early. The goal setting, what are we actually trying to do here? And although everyone wants to aspire to be top decile, the good committees, the good organizations recognize what they're going to be excellent at. If you've got a volunteer investment committee that's meeting on a quarterly basis and you've got a consultant who is there to drive great process and feed you good ideas, that's going to have good results. And that's good. And being okay with that being good. Howard Marks and everyone else would say, if you want to have truly differentiated results, you have to be doing something really quite different than what everyone else is doing. And in order to be built to do that, you have to have different resources. You have to have a different approach than a volunteer investment committee hiring a consultant. How long was your stay at Cambridge? Just a couple of years. I had the chance to work on that private side, doing primary manager research, helping clients build portfolios. And in 2009, I caught word that Berkeley was going to be starting an investment office. And I just knew I had to throw my hat in the ring. And it was really the chance of a lifetime. When you have a chance to go be captain of your own boat, that's a once in a lifetime thing. What was it that made it that once in a lifetime opportunity for you? First of all, serving an institution like Berkeley, just the incredible purpose of the institution and the role that Berkeley plays. You know, I'm a native California, in California, and the transformative nature of what Berkeley brings to its students. It's just every time you're on campus, every time you, you spend time with students, you just get charged up. I think most people that work for endowed institutions feel this. And it's in a public university, it's almost more urgent because you see so many different circumstances, so many different life stories represented in your student body. So that was one thing that was remarkable. Another thing that I point to was the chance to kind of take what I'd learned at Moore and what I'd learned at Cambridge and go through the puzzle, the challenge of trying to figure out what is the best of what I've learned? How do I apply that in a circumstance that is just so very different? I joined Cal in, in 2009 when the university was in the middle of a financial crisis. So the global financial crisis was ebbing, but the financial crisis at the university was really just getting underway. We had the challenges of governance. I mean, I had, you know, there are half a million alums from Berkeley. There's 40,000 students. There's just so many people that are involved and interested in what you're doing. And especially since we were the first in the UC system, that was also another part of the challenge was how do you do this in a way that gets all those folks on board with doing something that's new. And all of those things were just an incredible uh, a challenge to do, but a real honor to get to do them. When you stepped into the seat, what were those two or three 
best practices in your mind from Moore and Cambridge? One of the things I took away really from the experience of both those places was just not being too rigid in terms of asset class names. One of the fundamental drivers of how we built the portfolio and how we operated at Berkeley was that how something behaves is far more important than what it's called. And so when you build an asset allocation, you describe the behaviors that you expect out of that asset and you build a portfolio, you diversify a portfolio of different behaviors rather than just say, oh, I've got high yield bonds and I've got long only equities. Well, you're really taking the same risks there. And so that was one learning I think that was really pretty fun about all the tech with me. What were some of the other important ones? I think the second was just extraordinary people trying to create an organization at Cal where we didn't have the resources we had before. Big private foundation can pay very differently, offer a very different lifestyle. And I had to do what I could to attract and retain incredible people. And that meant running the firm a little differently, running the management company a little differently so that I could draw in people that were inspired by working for a place like Berkeley, but that also would give me enough years that I could get good results out of them. That meant that we ran a generalist team and I really hired some people that had aspirations of being a CIO. They wanted the breadth of what I could give them. And that's one of the other things I had at Cal. You used two adjectives earlier on when you just touched on it, volatile and public for the institution. How would you describe what that meant and how it played out in your experience there? It will shock none of your listeners that Berkeley is a fairly raucous place. I don't know that there was any decision I could have made that wouldn't have had a real diversity of opinions within our constituent base. And sometimes those opinions are rather loud and sometimes they take some time to engage. That's something you don't get when you're at a private foundation, especially at Moore. We were so lucky we had our founders living. And so your constituent base is actually present. And if there was ambiguity or things like today, if you're asking questions about ESG, you can ask them. (laughs) (laughs) In a place like Cal, you're going to get thousands of opinions. And then just the nature of the breadth of the constituencies. When you'd go and there are so many thousands of beneficiaries from the endowments that all want a bit of your time, that all have a stake in the success of what you're doing, making sure that they all are hurt and that they all feel like they understand what you're doing, they're on board. Those things are part of being a part of a public university. I thought it'd be fun to dive in on one little aspect of what you did, and it was how we got to know each other years and years ago. You don't hear a lot about these end-owner institutions working with fund of funds And I'd love to hear your experience in how you addressed some of these asset classes where you didn't have exposure and then how you evolved that over time. We met in this context years ago when I was starting at Berkeley and I knew of you and I knew of your phone. And when I started at Berkeley, the portfolio we had needed a lot of work. It was a hand-me-down portfolio that I knew not where I wanted to be and it have to re-architect it. That involved adding new relationships. It involved changing the way in which we did things. And in the shorter term, it meant changing some of the exposures. I looked at our relationship with Protege as what's a way I can take a chunk of the portfolio, move it relatively briskly into something that's going to reduce the net exposure of the portfolio. That was sort of thing one that came out of it. But the reason of how did it serve kind of a larger purpose was really that we got the best of you and your team. (laughs) I think some allocators can overlook the opportunity here to have a very direct dialogue with someone like you who's running your firm and say, but we have a transitional need to change the exposure in our portfolio 
And we're also going to be establishing relationships with new firms. We would like to share ideas with you. We would like to have you as a sounding board and a resource as our team goes out and meets with people. And you guys were fabulous at that. And we really appreciated that partnership that we were able to have and helped us move more quickly in building more direct relationships, particularly as we were very interested in working with younger, smaller firms. That was a really strategic effort on my part. That was so in the wheelhouse of what you guys did and why it was such a good fit to add to our portfolio. What were some of the other ways when you approached either getting exposures or building up the knowledge base of your team that you did that maybe some other people wouldn't have done if they didn't need to? The fund of funds, you weren't the only one that we used. One of the folks that I brought on my team was an extraordinary investor that didn't have a lot of experience in real assets. We partnered him up with one of the leading allocators in the space with a similar understanding that we are going to draft on you for mentorship and access and insight as we build that capacity in-house. Because again, on a place like Cal, you can't go out and hire the tip-top best real assets allocator in the marketplace because you don't have that kind of money. You've got to really cultivate, grow people from within. And this was one way of adding leverage to what we did. So talk me through what you're doing now. One of the things we did a lot of whenever I watched at Cal was we backed a lot of younger, smaller firms. And one of the critical reasons we did this was, I think it's actually just much better investing in the, as an allocator, you need to get to know the firms and you need to understand how those firms work that you back. I give that example, you know, if you show up to a high Roman numeral fund, the fund 13, fund 14, you know, when you're Berkeley, we're going to get a 25, maybe $50 million allocation of something. You're going to get a courtesy meeting in a data room and you're going to get a great IR team, but you're never really going to know what's going to go on at that firm. At Berkeley, we flipped at it. We had this incredible global brand where people loved having Berkeley's money in their firms. They loved the premature of this top university. And if we showed up with 25 million bucks to a firm that was raising their first fund or a hedge fund that was only a couple hundred million dollars, we got incredible access. And for me, I was able to build conviction and lean into investments because I felt like we really were able to know those firms. And that was a core part of what we did. We allocated a lot of mainline, iconic, kind of great firms, but then also about a third of our capital across different in different parts of the portfolio went to firms that would really reasonably be considered emerging. In 2017, when I stepped down to create my advisory business, this was one of the large ideas in my mind was there are all these incredibly talented investors that try and start new firms, but it's their first time raising capital or it's their first time running their own firm. And there's a lot of ways they can get off track. And I've been on the other side of billions of dollars worth of sub docs. I've said yes to fund ones and small firms. And can I help younger firms be more effective more quickly? That's the core idea. And I saw that the placement agent community is really good at capital and that's what they do. And they say they do some of this stuff, but as a buyer, as an allocator, as a guy who signed sub docs, you've had to put your arms around all the good and bad firms. And that's what I would help firms now is I help them be better, faster versions of themselves. You're in the seat for eight years. It usually takes a number of years for a portfolio to get structured in your image. How did you get to the launching point to go do something different? Building an endowment portfolio, it's never done because you're right. It does take so long for the things that you do to come to fruition and be objectively good or bad ideas. 
<laughs> fortunately, the bad ideas tend to declare themselves early, but the successes take longer. And I think one of the things I've really enjoyed is having backed now dozens of firms across the years and seeing how many of them have gone on to just tremendous success and the process working. And I once wrote about this, that the only disaster fund, really, truly disaster fund I ever invested in was not an emerging manager. It was a high Roman numeral fund that had a murderous row of great LPs invested in it. You can see that process working. Certainly when I was leaving, you could see those firms really starting to get their feet under them. And now, years later, it's great staying in touch with them and seeing how well they're doing. So for the last bunch of years, you've been working with a select group of emerging managers. What is it that you talk to them about when you're initially getting that work going? I work with teams that it's either at the moment they're launching or they're going through a significant strategic change. It's when they need or they seek an outside voice. That's often where I get involved. Sometimes it's in moments like this where you're getting calls from people that are thinking about leaving the big firm and they want to have a conversation with you. Do you think I can do it? Or you know, do you think I have what it takes? Or should I? is it the right time? So you have those initial conversations with people that are just helping them calibrate they're going to try to take this huge risk and do this incredibly hard thing. Is it the right time? Are they going to be likely to succeed? But when I get into it with folks, there's a series of steps you take them through that initial phase that's fairly universal, even for really well-established firms. I mean, I work with firms that are brand new startups to folks that are 20-year-old firms that are repositioning themselves. There are a few things that all these firms can do at first that sets the table for how we go and engage external audiences. The first of which is making sure that firms understand that good LPs aren't totally fixated on returns and track record. The track record is an output of a lot of other things. And that good LPs recognize that the determinants of a great track record are where the people are involved, what's the quality of their ideas, and how are they going about executing on those ideas. And so as a new firm, a firm is taking its story to the market, they need to be really excellent at describing those things. Most firms I work with, you start with, you do a manifesto. What's the long form? Just let it all breathe. I'm trying to do a deck. Give me a long form version of why you're starting this firm, why you created this firm. What is it that you see from your experience? What is the gap that you are looking to fill in the marketplace? And what's the best of everything you've learned that you're pouring into your investment? That exploration of ideas, that depth is all usually in people's heads. What I try to do is I try to turn them into a teacher. You've learned all this through your years of running this, whatever your strategy is. How do you teach it? How do you explain it to someone else and really let it breathe? So that's one piece of it is a manifesto. The second piece of it is pushing them to do some real business planning. One of the questions I'll ask folks is 10 years from now, we're going to have a dinner. We're going to celebrate the last 10 years. What do we celebrate? Is it that you reached $4 billion in AUM, that you have four funds that are top decile? that you're a springboard for talent. What is it that, that the success of the successful firm will look like? And what you choose in those moments will imply a lot of how you build the firm today. Plans will change and plans won't work out the way you want it or new opportunities will present themselves. But the idea of at this moment, where you sit today, can you tell me where you think the firm is going? Fulsome view, um, what the organizations look, how many people, how many offices, what kind of strategies? Are we just one firm that does one thing or are we going to be a broader firm that does a bunch of things? Putting those things together. So you have a manifesto, which is the ideas that push the firm, the business plan of how we're going to build an organization that supports the execution of those ideas. 
And then the third and last leg of this stool of this initial work is just doing some really heartfelt goal setting the founding members of the team. And what are their expectations for themselves and for the firm as they run this business? They're taking a huge risk on their career for all of their peers and putting a bunch of their own money and time. What are they aiming for out of all this process? And if you put those things together, this is where this all goes, the long wind up here. But the idea is, is that you have a great set of investment ideas with a purpose-built firm to execute those ideas. And the realization of those ideas aligns with the personal interests and goals of the people running the firm. That's a coherence that is so rare. As an LP, as an investor, you can smell it when it's all just have a sense of inevitability to it. That these are the right people doing the right thing in the right way. And they're going to do it because they can't not. And if you can help people tell a story in that way, they're going to be very effective at connecting with investors and growing their business. When you're on the other side of those conversations and it's early on and you have the time and attention of these people, at what point for you and how you're spending the time, do you decide, okay, these things do look aligned and this is a group I want to work with? Or maybe you see something very, very early on that, okay, they're not aligned and maybe I can help them, but let's just let them go at it because it's not the kind of thing that from your past you think will be ultimately successful. It's interesting how I chose where we started and how like things you take from early in your career. And it's the building blocks of the investment strategy. Those good fund managers, when you're talking, when they're hearing them talk about their strategy, are you sort of reaching for your wallet? Are you hearing something that you're like, this is a great idea. Or, this is a great way of doing something already familiar with. So you're pulled forward by the quality of the investment ideas. So it starts at that granular level. Tell me about businesses you're buying or the assets you're buying. What are you doing with it? What's the strategy? You know, so it starts, it starts really with that. Then the next thing is you're checking a lot for temperament. And this is when you ask people to take the time to think about the long term, ask them to put pen to paper for things that they should recognize are helpful to themselves. That's actually a pretty good marker of people who come to their work with a learner's mentality that recognize that they don't know everything and that some self-reflection actually could be really valuable to them. I found that's actually a really pretty interesting indicator of teams that I want to work with, and frankly, teams that I think are going to be successful, are those that are willing to engage in that kind of self-reflection. Sometimes you have those conversations, you find the right people, but those individuals aren't necessarily gifted at communicating that externally. I'm curious how you've coached people Someone who you think has the real stuff, but they're not expressing that in a way that will be heard easily by someone on the other side of the table. Well, there are a couple of things. One is this process of having them outline their ideas. For people that maybe aren't the most gregarious or easy in the room, how really extraordinary ideas opens all the doors because investors, we always are hungry for a good idea. And if it doesn't come in a great wrapper, well, I'm much more interested in the idea than I am in the wrapper. So a lot of it is helping them be just super sharp with their ideas so that their ideas and frankly, some of their materials can advance the story without them. The other piece I would say is I think of really great founders as convincers, people that are going to be very successful, can compel people to action with their ideas. One of the early markers is, can you compel someone to join your team who's got better options than taking a risk on your startup idea or your new firm. That's a great marker. 
you're telling people that are experienced and have other options something that they want to be a part of. Being able to be convincing to investors, that is a critical part of being successful. I think articulating that to fund managers, letting them know this is part of the job. You have to be able to have ideas that move the room if you want to be successful in running the firm. So when you've taken someone through these couple of steps, you've worked with them to make sure they're presenting that well, we happen to be in an environment today that is particularly difficult for emerging managers of all types. You've written something about this recently, but would love you to share how you think managers should be approaching a market that is difficult for everybody. And it certainly is. Good news for allocators is bad news for GPs, particularly newer GPs, in that the world's gotten a lot more interesting. If you're an allocator, if I put my CIO hat on, there's just a lot more things that I can invest in now that have much more interesting possibilities than they've had in a long time. Step one is just to recognize that that the opportunity set of the people you're trying to raise money from has changed dramatically. Where folks may have been natural allocators to something before, well, now they've got a lot of other things they could be spending time. So what do you do? The first thing is, some of the work I described, you have to have a super compelling story. You have to have a reason to exist. And frankly, there has to be a sense of urgency because on my desk, there are 25 things I could be doing. Why are you going to be one of the top two or three things that I spend time on? And if you're just average, well, I'll get to you eventually. But the idea is you have to be extraordinary and you have to be really clear. So that's one thing. The second thing is that coaching teams these days, just to be really attuned to what resources you have to go the distance, because it's going to take longer. Your path as a new firm to getting to escape velocity of economics and economic viability, it's just going to be longer. Do you need to do a working capital deal? Do you need to kind of think differently about how you're doing your work to be open to that. And maybe the third thing I, I spend a lot of time with folks now is on kind of modifying capital strategy. Blind pool, committed capital is incredibly scarce right now because there's so many other things that are taking up piece time and attention. But people always say yes to a great deal in an environment where there are lots of things going on. If you've got an extraordinary deal, you can get that deal funded. The idea is for a lot of fund managers to take some lessons from a fundless sponsor, leaning into taking more co-investments so your fund dollars go longer, you're buying yourself more time of capital deployment, while at the same time, you're also increasing the AUM of the firm, you're increasing the economics of the firm. It's just not the perfect way that you'd want to do it if you could do it exactly the way you wanted to do it. What are the things you've seen that you'd say that GPs commonly don't quite understand of the perspective of LPs? Well, I'd say one of them, as I mentioned, this focus on track record, that all we care about is track records. And I think they miss that how much we focus on ideas and the quality of the people that are executing them. And that we are looking for a total package, that you have to present that total package. That would be one thing that I think GPs often misunderstand about LPs. The second is the opportunity set that LPs face. And one of the great joys of being an LP is the ability to lean and pivot to different parts of the world, different asset classes, different strategies. And so if you're a real estate guy, it's always a great time to buy a building. Um, but if you're a CIO with a multi-asset class portfolio, maybe it's not such a great time for real estate. Or maybe I've got a little too much buyouts. So I'm going to go spend some time in the credit markets because, boy, those are looking interesting in ways they have in a long time. So that's another thing I think that's a lot of GPs misunderstand. 
I'd be remiss if I didn't circle back to your experience with investment committees, because I know the emerging manager stuff is almost the micro of this, but at the end of these decisions, there's a real macro decision. I'd love to capture some insights from that CIO seat, maybe that we can't elsewhere. What are some of the things that you experienced that we could talk about that you think maybe someone else who's sitting in the seat might not be as inclined to talk about? Well, let's see. So one thing that comes up a lot for CIOs is, I would say, the peer comparisons. This is especially true for colleges and universities, where there's just such a football game approach to it. (laughs) And whose school is beating whose? And I think it's an enormous distraction. And I think it's really easy to have folks caught up in, how did the other school do? So I think that's one takeaway that I think CIOs spend a lot more time talking about what other folks are doing than is really at all constructive to their time with their investment committees. Just on that point, I remember seeing some behavior that surprised me of CIOs when I was on the other side of the fence. Where are there examples, other than just talking about it and a little bit of mind share, where the incentives get let's just say, misaligned with the broader missions of the institutions because of the peer comparisons? Well, I mean, most explicitly in compensation. You have CIOs that have compensation that are benchmarked against how they did versus their rival schools. I think it's a fair to look at the other schools and, and say, we have similar resources. We could have had a similar outcome to them. But is that actually serving your liability stream? Is that actually time well spent and the risk well spent for the institution that you're stewarding capital for. I don't know that those things are, are well. I, mean, I remember one specific example of a manager being told not to take money from a certain group of institutions as a premise of taking money from another one because they were in that same peer comparison. Boy, that's really sinister. We all know that there are little pods of institutions that cluster, and it's individuals who sometimes used to work together or that have just very similar styles that you'll see them turn up. They're the same annual meetings and there's the same people and four people sitting together in each one. So there are those clusterings that happen, but I haven't heard of anyone overtly trying to block (laughs) one of their peers. I only saw it once and we'll leave the names out. We hear a lot about governance challenges and I'd love to get a better understanding of your experience in that seat and what some of those challenges were. As I mentioned earlier, the diversity of founder-led private foundation versus a very vibrant public university with thousands of constituents, that's one issue, it's just constituents. The, The challenge of who are you managing money for and how are their voices heard in how you actually manage the money. For most pools of capital, most CIOs, that's a big part of what they need to be able to do. Think about that public company. You have the CEO who manages external audiences, their shareholders, the general public. In the same way the CIO has that hat, that person's got to reach all those external audiences. Some of the other governance things that come up, having a plan that is focused on meeting the liability stream and taking the right risks for that institution. All long-term institutions have the challenge of inflation. You have to address that. Then beyond that, they can have very different dependencies and uses for their pools of capital. If you're an institution that generates most of your revenue through tuition and endowments of supplement, well, that gives you a very different relationship to risk than if you're an institution where all of your spending or the majority of your spending comes from your endowment. 
you should behave differently because of that. And sometimes in governance, those things get lost. That it's seen as like, hey, these are two institutions that do the same thing. Shouldn't they be invested in the same way? Once a group, an investment committee, investment team has established a set of policies and principles that make sense for that institution, how does the governance then get derailed off of that when it comes to making effective investment decisions that are in line with that mission? You nailed it at the beginning. And the, the idea is the investment team, the CIO, along with concert with the investment committee, their governance structure, establishes a plan, establishes resources to execute that plan. And then it's the team's job to go and do that. And at that point, the governance structure is there not to manage the process, but to oversee it. And where things I think can get off track is when there's too much reach down into that delegation, things that had agreed to have been delegated or there are constraints that are put on that effectively change the delegation that has happened. As an investment committee, your job is there to agree to the plan, agree to the resources of the plan, pick the captain of your boat, that CIO, and then stay on top of, is the process working? Because we all want the great results, but you have to focus on what drives the great results. And the great results is great process. You take great people with great plan, you get great results. As an investment committee, your best time is spent probing the decision-making that's happened, the basis for why the team is doing what it's doing and ensuring that that's sound rather than having specific conversations about, I think this hedge fund should be $25 million instead of $35 million. So as a component of that, you've recently put out a piece discussing the importance of the role of the investment committee chairs. And would love you to take me through that piece, the insights in it. It's so interesting in that this is a role that I think and I described it as unheralded because overwhelmingly, this is a role that's not compensated. It's usually someone giving an incredible amount of their time and effort to help an institution. The temperament of that person, the ability to control the agenda, the way in which they manage meetings, those sorts of things can have an massive impact on the outcomes you get. And I always think that the most important determinant of long-term success for any pool of capital is the quality of its governance. And that starts with the investment committee chair. And how is that person bringing good people onto the investment committee? How is that person engaging with their CIO? All of those things are things that that person is volunteering to do in their spare time, but are critically important to actually achieving great results. What have you seen in the differences among the firms you work for with the ones that really achieve that escape velocity compared to the ones that don't? There's always a product market fit, especially for firms that are doing something that's new. You can't guarantee that. And it doesn't mean that the investments are bad or that the investment talent isn't there. It's that the market isn't a big enough buyer of what those people are doing. That's one where it's not an investment loss, but as a business, it's not going to be successful because you're not finding the, the audience for it. What's an example of that? I think there's a lot of stuff in the impact space that is very, very interesting. That these long-term secular trends around sustainability and resource scarcity, they're all true. They're all great opportunities. There are lots of really good opportunities that are in that space, but some of those strategies are still aspirational in that we want investors to care or we want investors to allocate capital to these things 
that are new, that are novel, that don't have a 10-year track record. And often they're finding there's not enough of an audience yet to take those risks with them to build track records and new strategies. On the other side, I'd love to hear your biggest success story and what were the characteristics of what really made that work? A bunch of the firms I work with, they've really gone through tremendous change and growth. And I think my very first advisory clients are some guys that work in the carbon markets. I started years ago with them before they launched and I knew something about the carbon markets. I knew they existed, but I didn't have any expertise in it. And seeing them and their deep, deep expertise in these markets as three partners running this firm and helping them translate their expertise into a language and a cadence that's understandable to allocators like me, helping them see the analogies in their work with other things, particularly in the real asset space is really where they fit and help them communicate their ideas in a lens that allocators are ready to understand. They're not the largest firm I work with, but they've gone from nothing to half a billion dollars of AUM in a set of strategies that most major LPs don't have exposure to. And they've built a great roster of LPs that are representative of some of the best allocators out there. That's, I think, a tremendous win. And the team has been incredibly satisfying to see do so well. So as you look out over the next couple of years, let's put back on the CIO hat. Tricky times. We talked to a lot of these people. What are you hearing about the way people are approaching their portfolios differently from how they've needed to in the past? Things that really excite me about the current moment is I think we're in a world of pockets of capital scarcity in a way that there haven't been in a while. Being open and being really on your front of looking for those sorts of opportunities. Things that you see now that I think are kind of interesting in the credit markets. We haven't had the major, major credit event yet, but you're seeing pockets of friction and you're seeing pockets of no money showing up and it's just one resource that capital scarcity is there. That's really interesting. If I put my allocator hat on right now, you're seeing opposite side of what I described with the challenges for fund managers. You're going to have a great opportunity to get access to great firms and more importantly, you're going to have great access to great deals. If you can have the resources to have good co-investment programs, you're going to get access to things right now that are table-pounding deals, but because there's some capital scarcity, they're not getting funded in the same way. I think that can be a real interesting opportunity for LPs too. So what's the scope of your business today? I take on a couple new relationships. Over the last few years, I've built up a really nice portfolio of clients across a bunch of different strategies. A dozen firms since I started doing this work, and they've collectively gone to raise billions of dollars worth of capital. And the thing that's really satisfying about my work is that I've been able to do it in a way that's as lined as I can be with the LP side of the world. So that my compensation, the way in which I work with teams, is overwhelmingly tied to this successful realization of carry. I've built myself essentially a portfolio of stakes in the carry outcomes of a bunch of firms. Although I have an economic relationship with fund managers, my economic relationship is really only based on them delivering great results. What are the things that you most miss about being in the CIO seat? I had a great team. The chance to build the team, especially starting from scratch, I was fully responsible for everyone we hired. It was just a privilege to work with really talented people that were geared towards the mission of what we did. Yeah, that's probably what you miss most. And what excites you most going forward with High Country? I think the innovation side of it, there are always interesting teams doing new things. This is the bleeding edge of emerging managers that I work with on one side. 
or the bigger existing firms that are trying to reposition themselves. Those moments of change and helping folks understand and navigate those things. Like to think of it as those circumstances, I certainly don't have all the answers, but I know a lot of the questions. And engaging in those conversations and pulling people forward with their own thinking, their own ideas, it just always excites me. Well, John Austin, you know what's coming now, having listened to a couple of these. So I'm just going to dive right into some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Definitely getting outdoors. The best part of growing up in Northern California is being spoiled with all these things to do outside all year round. And so there's nothing that beats the flow state that comes from hours on a quiet trail. What's your biggest pet peeve? I hate being late. And how about on the investment side, investment pet peeve? I would say poor alignment. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So it's actually a husband-wife pair. And each of them were extremely accomplished in their respective disciplines. But this is a couple that's known me since I was a kid. They're the parents of one of my oldest friends. And across the decades, they've given me all the encouraging words and at times ungentle feedback. They've opened doors for me. They've always been there to ask me the right questions. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? Distressed sellers of good assets. Simple enough. How about your biggest blind spots? I was thinking about this. It's really too easily rejecting good ideas that feel too conventional. And I think of mega cap buyouts as I think of, it doesn't really resonate with me and it. it's really more of a blind spot than it is actually a good, well-founded reason. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I'd say the value of continuous learning. My dad was a surgeon and even until late in his career, he was always trying to learn new techniques and I just always admire that about him. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? To not be so stubborn in asking for help. Quite familiar with that one. John Austin, thanks so much for sharing this perspective, both at the bottom of the funnel, these emerging managers, and then the top of the funnel, understanding how these committees work. Indeed, Ted, it's been a real pleasure. And if there's time, I'll make a little plug as to one of the things I've always loved about the name of your podcast capital allocators is that the capital allocation process is the defining characteristic of any investment firm. And whether you're an LP or a fund manager, if you understand why someone says yes to something and why they say no, or why they come close to saying yes, but still say no, that that friction, that is what defines each of these different investment organizations. And so a program like yours, these capital allocators, that is the crux of what we do. That's why I've always been such a big fan. Amen to that. Thanks so much, John Austin. All right. See you soon, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.